Some episodes may contain adult themes or explicit language. I've never heard of it. I've never seen another copy of it. So I'm pretty sure it's like some kind of gypsy curse in a book. Because <laughs> since then, I have been like constantly buying physical books and adventure modules and all this kind of malarkey. Welcome to Dungeons and Dinners, where the love of fantasy is food for thought. I'm your host, Brett Lindley, and today I'm talking with special guest Mikio about his latest board game, VR game, and how to deal with cursed rulebooks. If you'd like to support the podcast and fund new monsters, bonus episodes, downloadable recipes, and adventure modules, head on over to patreon.com slash dungeonsanddinners. Welcome! Take a seat anywhere. We'll be right with you. And as I said in the intro today, we are joined by special guest Mikio. Mikio, congratulations for coming on to the Dungeons and Dinners podcast, and thank you for joining. Ah, uh, well, thank you very much. It's a, I wouldn't, ex- I guess it's a bit of an honor to be here. I mean, you just got like one k followers on Twitter now as of today, I think, right? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I jumped pretty quickly there. <laughs> so yeah, that's about like uh. A tiny bit more, ten times more followers than I do. I'm, I haven't hit a hundred yet, so yeah. Well, maybe we can happy. share some wealth here. So I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> let let people get to know you and uh, and see where it goes. You know. Yeah, because everybody uh, buys their board games and RPG stuff based on the creator's personality, right? Hey, you never know. It can it can go a long way. <laughs> So uh, you, you speak of board games and, and purchasing here. So for the uninitiated, uh, who is Mikio? What are you about? What do you do? Well, uh, I'm a game designer from uh, Quebec, the northern lands, as it were. I'm a, a social worker by trade, but outside of that, I enjoy making board games. I've got one that's currently published on the Game Crafter. It's a, a two-player abstract board game called the Machiavelli. I think it's very good. It hasn't sold a tiny bit yet, but whatever. And I also make RPG stuff. Uh, I plan on making adventure modules when I've got the time. I don't right now. I also uh, make a few rules additions, such as adding, uh, making modules that add firearms to games that don't have them, because I'm a big fan of those as well. And I'm also the lead designer for a a VR trading card game called Cards and Tankards. It's available on Steam and uh, Quest. I think SideQuest. Yeah. That's awesome. I uh, just very recently got a VR headset. So I'm going to have to take out, you said, uh, Cards and Tankards? Yep. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that out for sure. So uh, you mentioned uh, modules like Firearms as an Artificer uh, by, you know, both kind of by trade and uh, or at least by hobby and definitely one of my favorite classes to play. Um, what's your uh, what's your Firearms module like? Uh, it's a Firearms module I added to the uh, RPG for Binlands, if you know about it. Okay. Uh, basically, I wanted to do something uh, that's historically accurate because a lot of people have this image of medieval or just medieval times as you know swords and big plate armors and all that stuff but if we look at you know if we if we go boring and look at the actual history of stuff firearms became a thing before plate armor and plate armor was kind of a response to you know handheld boomsticks right so I always, I'm always a bit annoyed, you know, I get it, it kind of, most of the time, it's basically just like a heavy crossbow that takes more time to reload, and yeah, that's a bit boring, so you kind of need to have a whole rule scheme for firearms, and if you're making an RPG, that can be annoying to do, so I get it, Mm -hmm. so that's where I come in, and make the stuff that they didn't, so I added a whole bunch of Mostly historically accurate firearms going up to the match locks, which is like a flintlock, but with a match. That's how that works. <laughs> as well as, you know, a few other things and a new uh, profession, which is the equivalent of a class that uses firearms in a fun way, I think. Nice. That's awesome. I uh, I always respect it is something that it, it's really difficult to deal with firearms in a lot of RPGs because... 
they they tend to be a lot more lethal at range, especially as you move up through the ages, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I I know in modern campaigns, I played a lot of uh, D twenty modern in the three five system, and I was interested. They they handled firearms somewhat differently in that you could just make killing blows with them where you you couldn't with other things, which was I don't know. I, I both enjoyed a slightly different take with them. And it, it definitely made combat more lethal because the bad guys can have guns. Um, so you have to think and plan a little bit more. Uh, but also it seemed a little bit too punishing, which of course a lot of things yeah. in, in 3.5 kind of were at the time. So, Oh, yeah. So you're also a, a board game maker. So can you give us a little bit of background on a Machiavelli? All right. Well, you see, this all started, uh, I think, last year. Yeah, like in uh, December of 2020, where I was starting to get into the uh, local LARP scene, or at least looking into it, because uh, the region I'm in of Quebec, called uh, Abitibi-Témiscamingue, don't try and pronounce it, you won't do it. <laughs> I took uh, a little bit of French, not that much. <laughs> yeah, no. this, this, ain't, this ain't the usual game, son. Uh, right. Anyway, the, the region I'm in, which is a very small region with not a lot of people, has like three or four active LARPs a year. So, you know, that's pretty damn impressive. So I was like, yeah, that's not bad. I'm freaking missing out. Like COVID's happening. I got some time to prepare before the next stuff. And that came to my mind. The fact that so far, most of the like uh, board games I had designed beforehand were generally quite complex with a bunch of rules and cards and all that malarkey. And I was like, I should probably like cut my chops on something that's simpler because the simpler you make something, the more each mechanic has to be top-notch for it to be good. Yeah. And I felt like I was maybe like hiding faults in my game design by just stacking on stuff, which is, you mm -hmm. know, the, the Kickstarter school of game design, basically. So, yeah, I was thinking I was prob I was probably just like stacking mechanics on stuff on top of bad game design to kind of hide things and just go for quantity over quality quality or you know the kickstarter school of game design basically mm -hmm. yep, so, yep. so i was thinking <laughs> what's the simplest game i can make i could go for like a uh, oink games kind of like 15 card kind of setup or mm -hmm. i could make an abstract game kind of like chess and stuff and that kind of, kind of came with the idea of the larp stuff i was researching at the moment that i could make a board game that i could bring to larps and just use during the game because you know i had a similar experience in a larp i did before in college where i managed to get one of the key pieces that you needed for like the quest off of mm -hmm. another player by beating him at poker dice which is something i had brought to the larp and i was nice. like if i make the game i'm never gonna lose <laughs> ah the truth revealed exactly so i was thinking that's perfect i just have to make something that feels like it could like you could see it in like a medieval like fantasy movie or something or like in the back of a, an RPG book. Right. And also has to be really simple because you have to be able to kind of carry it around and set up and teach people how to play it in a really short period of time. Yeah, exactly. So easy to teach, easy to carry. So I thought, yeah, why not? Let's try it out. So I did a bunch of research on historical games, you know, games played throughout history and what kind of mechanics mm -hmm. they played. I uh, bought some of them. Uh, there's like this uh, British company that makes recreations of historical games on like oh, cloth. That's really cool. Oh yeah, on cloth boards and stuff. They come in pieces. Oh wow, that sounds oh, yeah. awesome. Yeah, I would love. I I would love a, a cloth game board. That'd be dope. Oh, it is. It is. I've made a few of them with cloth game boards. I've got them right over there. It is pretty. It is pretty snazzy. I'm gonna be honest. Yeah. I think it's so. Like so. How does Machiavelli play then? Uh, well, it's played on a... Uh, one of the nice gimmicks, I think, is that it's played on a circular board. Okay. Which has like... Uh, I, think one, I two, saw like two. an image of it. It's got like some colored dots on the board. Yeah. Basically, it's got like... It's two concentric rings. One that has like eight dots and the other has like 16. Okay. They're joined together with a few lines, which mm -hmm. indicates where you can move your pieces. And the way it works is you've got seven pieces total. You've got five pawns, one prince token, and one knight token. You place your uh, you place your basic circular pieces, you know, your pawns and princes, 
you know, you place one, the opponent places one, etc. Once all the player, once all the pieces are placed, after that, you have to move each one individually during your turn. You can only move one. Okay. So you kind of like move them into places to try and win by one of two methods, which I kind of like. Uh, the first method is to make a line of five pieces. So kind of like tic-tac-toe, mm, just like okay. a straight line or following the circles. And the other is to have two of your pieces flanking the enemy prince. Ah. So you have one on each side and that you capture them, you've won. That's kind of, so you have a target to attack, but you also have a kind of region to defend that I, I really like the idea of merging something like a, a connect four or a, like a tic-tac-toe, like you said, where you've got an objective that you can try to do, but if you see the opportunity, you can either, it, it pushes, you've got two things that you've got to do. You've got to either disrupt your, your opponents, you know, trying to make, you know, several in a row or stop them from doing the same to you while also seeing if you can kind of take advantage of that opportunity where somebody leaves themselves open and you can kind of checkmate them, so to speak. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's kind of that was kind of the idea. Also, because of the way the game starts with players putting the pieces on the board, just the way you put the pieces can actually really change uh, because you don't do a ton of moves in a game. It really changes the feel of the game. It's like yeah. if both players just go really hard and put all of their pieces in the middle, then it becomes a really aggressive kind of slugfest where you're always trying to move the opponent out of the way. Whereas if you were to put more of your pieces on the back, then it's kind of more defensive. And the thing to help that out is that the prince is not defenseless. He can push other pieces when he moves, meaning like if there's a piece in front of him, he just moves it in the direction he's moving. So he kind uh -huh. of takes his place. So he can muscle things around. And it can, can keep move. from being flanked that way. Yeah, and it can actually do that to both uh, your or your opponent's pieces. I've actually oh. once lost a game by, by my opponent just moving once one of his uh, one of his pieces just in a way to make me lose. It was I didn't see it coming from a mile away. And the other piece, which I haven't mentioned yet, the knight is a uh, in like the version I've got. It's like a little cube. You mm -hmm. can knight one of your peons to make him a knight. And the way it works when it's a knight is that it can jump over a piece, mm. basically allowing it to move two as long as, you know, it's not there's not a whole row of them. So you right. can always use it. I, I like that because you can use it instead of moving or placing a piece to, like, give some time and see what your opponent does. Or you can use it on one of your pieces later to uh, get them out of a bind if they're, like, stuck, as I said, in the... Uh, Mm -hmm. Sludge fest. No, that's really cool. I, I think that it's a really interesting idea, especially because I like games where the setup is more interactive. Yeah. Like it, it's almost like the first half of the game, it's still very strategic. Uh, like a lot of tabletop war games have that setup phase where you take turns putting something down and then seeing how your opponent is going to react to it, what they put down. And that starts building the tension and the strategy. And then there's kind of the second phase where you know you actually begin like you said kind of duking it out i think that's a really cool idea oh yeah and you still have to be careful because you could technically lose during that part of the game if you right if, if you just completely space out for some reason your opponent just just puts like five pieces there already and just mm -hmm. there you go then that's game over <laughs> yeah the, the games can end really quickly but that was kind of my point because you know i'm looking at the most popular abstract game of all time chess Right. And chess has a lot of faults. I'm a big proponent that chess isn't amazing overall, mm -hmm. at least casually anyway. Because, you know, you could, it's a contest of seeing like 50 moves ahead. Right. And, and for people like me that don't like to think, that's a real problem. <laughs> but with a game like that, even though there's no randomness, all the different moves and tactics and pieces that you can put in stuff add some kind of randomness or at least the fact that there's a lot of things that could happen that you don't really see coming right it's it's a combination of if you are a good kind of battle player in capturing princes then you want to start setting up your board in ways that leverage that and if you're good at moving pieces and tricking people into letting you get five in a row, then you want to set your board up like that. And I think that that's a it's almost like 
if you are allowed to set up your chessboard how you wanted it while you're setting up the chessboard. And I think that that does add a lot of depth to a game that could go in either direction. I think it's just a great idea. I love the concept. I'm oh, definitely yeah. going to be checking this one out. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, that's a pretty common rule from, you know, a bunch of different historical games that you put your pieces uh, and then you move them. Uh, most uh, the, the most obvious one is uh, uh, Five Men's Morris or Nine Men's Morris, which was played by the Romans. And the board itself is kind of inspired by the uh, board that you use to play Nine Men's Morris, except uh, for a little bit of a historical aside, uh, we, the archaeologists once found like circular game boards engraved in stone and stuff. And because it seemed relatively different from, like, as I said, Five Men's Morris, they thought it was a different game called Rota. Except mm -hmm. it was this, it was basically showed like a few years later that it's a game that doesn't exist. Rota is not a real game. Uh, it was just tiny circular boards of uh, like Three Men's Morris. But I took that board and I thought, but what if it was a real game? Just add a. Add an extra ring for more space. Right. Take a bunch of different rules from, you know, Taffle Games, which is a Viking historical card game, as well as a bunch of other stuff and things I came up with. And you got S2 going on. No, for sure. I, I also love that you talk about constraints in trying to make the simplest game that you can. I think that that applies not just to uh, board games and card games, but also to like game design in video games and in TTRPGs. Oh yeah. Uh, I've I spent some time, you know, I, I wanted to build video games for a while and never really got into programming deep enough. I always kind of fiddled around at a surface level until a couple of people recommended that I do a game jam, which you have like 48 hours to build yep. a game from start to finish. You're not building Skyrim in that time <laughs> no although someone did try to recreate no man's sky once <laughs> right <laughs> but like you're lucky if you can get like a top-down shooter or asteroids or pac-man like in in 48 hours you've got to really narrow down everything everything oh, yeah. has to be minimized your sound you get like maybe three sound bites <laughs> maybe one music track you know like don't you're not going to have levels you're not going to do a procedural engine or anything like that and no. I had also taken that same concept and applied it to uh, making a card game once or, or a board game because I, I wanted to make some kind of card or board game. And I was like, well, I need to reduce the number of inputs that I have. So I don't want a game board. So that limits me to like cards, dice and tokens of some kind. Right. And I have 48 hours and I need prototypes. So I'm, you know, a Sharpie a deck of cards, a, a, a couple of six-sided dice, and some, like, spare change. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I've done a 48-hour... Uh, I've done a few 48-hour uh, board game jams myself to kind of cut my teeth on it. Yeah, it is not easy. And then you got to do no. testing after that, and that can take right. a while. You've got to... Well, just and even in that 48 hours, you got to have enough time to try to find out what's the biggest, most glaring... I gotcha moment that's in this game and <laughs> try to plan around it. Yeah. But I think it's, I think constraints help a huge amount. And and I think that especially in something like a, a tabletop RPG where the, the idea is to have no constraints, right? The, the whole point is that you can do anything. Yeah. I think that sneaking constraints into your campaign design or your adventure design can help kind of narrow your focus while still allowing that room for the game to become whatever it wants to be. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, that is something that's been uh, really explored uh, recently with, you know, like zine culture and stuff. Because you look back, 80s, bit more... Uh, bit less during the 90s, but every RPG that came out were these gigantic Bible-sized books, mm -hmm. which contained every single rule for everything, and you could 
wallop somebody with them they were so big. yeah besm and gurps both come to mind <laughs> <laughs> i mean not even that like even other stuff legends of the, the five rings and i've got a yep, whole bunch of things yep. just massive things and, and most of the time you have three of those massive things too right <laughs> but nowadays like there, there's a lot of people there's an absolutely large amount of people just making like rpgs that fit that fit on a note card or a small mm-hmm. magazine or a pamphlet and you know it's probably just like it's probably good enough for maybe one session of like four to five hours but you know it's the attempt of boiling it down to the basest essentials right there's a a guy that was somewhat local to me here in town that uh had developed a system in the i think the late 70s called dinky dungeons and it was published like cut pieces of paper stapled together in the middle with two super tiny D6s. And you only had like two stats. You had mental and physical. And then each little pamphlet was like 10 or like five folded note cards stapled in the middle with an adventure in them. And I, I and the base rules. The base rules came with every adventure. <laughs> there weren't many. There wasn't much to them. <laughs> But and then they would just kind of distribute them in like little Ziploc baggies. The the artist actually for it uh, went on to become the artist that helped uh, do the original artwork for Munchkin, Ooh. Uh, which was really neat. Yeah. So there's there's a little bit of history in there or one oh, yeah. of the original artists rather. But yeah, I think that condensing down game mechanics is a great way to play with the pieces of a game that you like the most and want to see if you can explore one concept more deeply than all of the concepts at a really shallow level. Yeah, and even then, I think it's worth it to do, even if you're, like, making a big project, just to find out, like, boil things down and find out what's fun, what works, what doesn't work, like, what mechanics can I... Because, you know, you're you're going to try out a whole bunch of different things when trying to boil things down that much. You're, you're basically making a demigloss of design right yeah no that is a hundred percent sir that is that is a great reference yeah you're you're really boiling it you got to make a glaze out of a gallon of sauce (laughs) yeah so during that you're gonna find out things you're like that is so rich i could make an entire game out of and that's the stuff you keep for your next project Mm mm-hmm yeah save save the good stuff for later we'll skim off we'll skim the good stuff off the top (laughs) set that aside but let's maybe try to i i actually i've been through that where i've made some stuff that i think is like wow this could this could really succeed but i don't know anything about business or marketing or anything else and i don't want to like sacrifice my greatest invention to that maybe i'll start with something that's a little bit more rickety that i don't care as much about if it fails it's still a success because i get to learn (laughs) that was kind of the idea like one of my first uh board game projects was like a big kind of uh hero quest empire game yep just a big old kickstarter tier logistical nightmare kind of deal Mm -hmm. and uh i was like I think I'm going to shelf that until I get enough skill to really make it justice. Right. It uh, It is kind of a a daunting task to get past. I For a long time, I had always kind of thought that, well, when I finish a project that's worthy of, of being sold, that that's like 80% of the work. Then I just put it out there and make money, right? And come to find no. out like the exact opposite is true. Absolutely not. It's all about PR. <laughs> yeah, it's all PR and marketing. And I did not, I neglected to spend 20 years of my life on that. I spent 20 years drawing up games and notebooks. So Yeah, that sounds about like me. Like I'm over here. I released a game because I was like, at first I just wanted to do like a few copies of the Machiavelli. I was thinking I'd sell them at LARPs and make a little bit of money off of that. But then I saw, it was so simple. I could probably put it on the Grain Crafter for cheap. And uh, turns out, Nobody bought it except family, friends, and the people I bullied online. <laughs> so I was like, "All right, all right, I get it. I gotta, I gotta do the hustle. I gotta, I gotta start like going on Twitter, actually using Twitter and mm-hmm. doing a bit of networking. See if that leads me anywhere." Yep, join a couple networking clubs and <laughs> yeah. try to get try to convince people in person too. I've I've been through a little bit of that and I mean even some like Twitter only can go so far because there's a pretty big difference between 
the number of Twitter followers uh, we have and the number of listeners we have. <laughs> so, oh yeah, I don't doubt it. That is, a, but there's yeah. also, I mean, there's also listeners that aren't on Twitter. So, I mean, I don't rely on Twitter for everything. I think the oh, Twitter yeah. community oh, yeah. for RPGs and TTRPGs is great. Oh, yeah, I think it's that good. it's uh, it for me, it's better than the video game side. The video I game mean, side hasn't really done me a lot of justice. Yeah, but. I mean, honestly, like. The tabletop RPG side of Twitter is pretty great compared to the rest of Twitter, but if you say <laughs> right. that, like you're putting the bar real freaking down. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, definitely nice to see. Like I, I hated Twitter and never thought I would get an account. Got one for our other show, uh, Pick Up Your Sticks, and it was just kind of I felt very forced in using it. And so yeah. when I started D and Dinners, I was like, I don't know if I want to do this, but I feel like I have to. And it was like yeah, a whole new, a whole different universe. I just, I'd switched to a different plane of existence. I teleported and everybody's nice here. So I'm yeah. happy with it. I, 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 yeah, I, I'm not sure if I've uh, reached that point yet because I'm still at the point where uh, I get about 0.1 comments whenever I do a post, tweet or anything. Yeah. Same amount of replies if I do something else. <laughs> so, you know. I, I I did do like a tweet a few weeks ago asking if people were free to do a podcast and I got nothing. So I'm pretty happy to be here for that too. Hey, no worries. I it's one of the, also one of those things that like it also it the the pendulum swings very fast where soon you'll be in the other side where you can't re- you don't have enough time to reply to everything. Oh yeah. You can't see everything that you're following like there's I, I miss probably 90% of what I w- wish I could see. So it's a it's a a blessing and a curse for sure. I, I suppose so. I'm a bit of an attention hog myself, so it doesn't really do much to me. <laughs> well, it just takes a couple a couple few ones. It's a it's a slot machine. Yeah, every because yeah, it, it's like time of day, who's online, who sees it, and who you just got to keep pulling. It, right, it, exactly. It, yeah, it, it really is like bre- breaking through. You're basically trying to smash a window with your bare fist. Hmm. Only yeah. one of those thick office windows that they don't want you escaping the building from. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It is It is something else. It is something else. It kind of feels like you're screaming into the void for a while. And I've seen that in other creators that I follow. You know, like Kickstarters about to, that never seem to really quite get the traction. And mm-hmm. games that never seem to really escape their niche. No, it, it's a, it, it it's definitely painful. is one of those. Oh, no, go ahead. Nah, it, it is it's painful to look at it's painful to look at i mean yeah it, i that's part of the reason why i started this show is to highlight creators i you know spent at least a solid well, more than 20 years now i'm 36 so uh getting getting close to about 25 years just playing board games and rpgs and things like that and i have I won't say stolen, but borrowed a lot of content from, I mean, you know, like free content that's available from artwork that people have have published to one shot adventures, one page dungeons, you know, guides and manuals. And I, I buy what things are available when I see them. But there's also just tons of free content. And for a long time, I was a oh, yeah. college kid. So I want to, like, give back and highlight those people that are out there, even if they're making free content. Like I want to highlight them. I want people that are making paid content. I want to give back in some way for all of the things and all of the (laughs) treasures that I have incorporated into my many campaigns. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is a very, it's a big old community, people giving, people taking. When it comes to that, personally, I'm a big fan of the uh, pay it forward philosophy. Mm -hmm. You know, if you do good, if you share, you'll get some of it back at some point. Like it's, yep. why not? It doesn't cost you anything to share a bit of that stuff with others. Yeah, really. Like a retweet doesn't, we're not paying like even a penny to click no. the retweet button. So <laughs> if you like it, share it. That's, that's something that I, I try to live by. And it's also something I try to ask others to do because it it's not without the support. Like if you can't support something, that's fine, but you might be able to share it to somebody that can so whether you're retweeting an episode or an affiliate link or a, a Patreon page or a Ko-Fi or whatever, like you don't have to support, but you don't know the six steps to Kevin Bacon that could get, <laughs> you know, something that I've made or something that somebody else has made in front of the right people that 
you know, see it and say, yes, I want to support that. I want to make this awesome. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, it, it's something that, you know, probably haven't, I haven't probably felt it as long as you have. But, you know, before doing all this stuff, I was the, uh, I was the president of my college tabletop club for a while. And before that, I was the PR guy. And even then, in a small circle, always feels like an uphill battle for people to actually listen and give a damn about you. Yep. No, for certain. It's it, it's sometimes, like you said, it feels a lot like screaming into a void, like trying to break through the glass ceiling of, of getting uh, stuff out there. And I think there was a, a short, there's a very brief flash in the pan moment right around when the the magical combination of Kickstarter and 3D printing kind of merged. Like when that line crossed, there's probably like a six month window where it didn't matter what board game you made. If you had a couple a 3D access to a 3D printer to make some goofy looking tokens and put them on a board, then everybody you would just make a million dollars. <laughs> but then because that happened, everybody would took all of their, which I think it's awesome. I think that Kickstarter and 3D printing both have made huge strides in getting board games to be more accessible and in 3d printing add like uh, any kind of cnc machine for wooden pieces or wooden boards laser like the laser cut mdf assembly type stuff it means that anybody with an idea can finally get it out there but it also means that everyone with an idea is getting it out there yeah that's kind of the issue you just get so much it's easy for stuff to get drawn out but you know, 3D printing absolute big revolution for RPGs too. Like, uh, mm-hmm. especially resin printers. Now you've oh, got yeah. people. Now you've got people on Patreon making a living out of making absolutely based 3D models of creatures, mm-hmm. dungeons, mm-hmm. dice towers, anything you you can dream of. Yeah, it's uh, it's something that I've got. I, I went ahead and, and doubled down and got myself a resin 3D printer, and I haven't gotten to use it quite as much as I want to. Um, but I would love to. Well, and there's so many things coming together to make it all happen at once, right? Like oh, Fiverr yeah. and other industries where you can hire somebody. Like I've I've messed around in 3D modeling, but I'm not great at it. Yeah. But I can sketch something out on a piece of paper, go to Twitter, find a, a, a digital artist to make an awesome looking picture of it right for you know maybe 40 50 100 depending on how what how what quality you want and then same thing go and find a 3d artist to take that high quality digital photo and make a 3d model of it and then print it and paint it and and then use it in a game and stat it out and put a stat block to it like Oh yeah, like if you you couldn't get close to that in the eighties, you you would put no. like a you, you you tape a piece of paper on a bottle cap and draw a goblin on it. That was right. <laughs> this lump of clay is a gibbering mouther. Yeah, <laughs> I mean I've got a three D printer too. It's right, it's right there. Ooh, nice. But I I didn't go for resin. That was a bit expensive, personally. Like they're coming down quite a bit. I my first three D printer was astronomically expensive uh, yeah. was a was like an FDM printer. I, I got in pretty early to the scene. Yeah. So I, I mostly built my own. It took about 40 hours of assembly. Oof. I think I bought it after selling a used car and put most <laughs> of the money from that. It was a pretty beat up car, but still most of the money from that car. Into I, the it gives you an idea. <laughs> and, uh, and I never got any, I mean, I got like a couple of iffy okay prints out of it, but mostly garbage. The yeah. the resin pretty 3D printer was like um I got the the Elegoo Mars 2 mono, so it's like 200 bucks, which isn't it isn't cheap. It's not you know $50 at a Walmart, but it's still not prohibitively expensive, especially for no. what it does. Oh yeah, no, and it came out of the box fully assembled. So oh yeah. It's not that it's expensive, like compared to the one I've got, which is you know your standard fair PLA one. It's more that you know you gotta you gotta buy the juice. You gotta change mm-hmm. the plates. You gotta get some curing stuff. Well, even if you don't get a curing station, you need like the curing liquid and stuff. Right. You know, it's a lot of stuff you gotta change all the time, which was. A, it is. It does like require a little bit more upkeep. It is a little bit, and it's a whole different learning curve. I thought yeah. I was like, well, I know three D printing, so I get I get how this works. Nope didn't it, everything is different and so you still have to yeah. join into a forum and talk to people and even with something that's pre-set up there's still a pretty hefty learning curve that you have to get through to 
to get the difference between like 80% good where it's passable at a distance and like a hundred percent, like you can hold it up and really look at it. So, so with uh, some of your history, a lot of, a lot of board games, uh, a little bit of video game design in there. Um, Where is your, and and some LARPing, especially, Uh, do you want to get into that any at all? Like how long have you been a LARPer? Uh, I want to say like technically about five years. Because okay. the uh, previously mentioned college tabletop club always has maybe like two LARPs per year, you know, one per uh, semester, mm-hmm. generally done by uh, whatever high-ranking veteran of the club wants to do one. I've even made one with two other people once. It's pretty low-grade, you know, it's inside of a college. People right. are barely dressed. Most <laughs> of the time, it's more of an excuse to beat each other with buffer swords. Right. <laughs> including the uh, infamous Mr. Spaghetti, which is uh, one where the idiot didn't put like a f- tube inside. So it's, oh, it's, it's, all yep. it's basically a whip. Uh, <laughs> so that's the kind of LARPs I've been to so far. Because as I said, yep. I started looking, you know, once I was nearing the end of college is when I felt like I had some free time and especially some free money for the real deal. And mm-hmm. then COVID hits. So of course. Yeah. I'm waiting for that. Uh, they're planning on doing some stuff later uh, this uh, later this summer, though, I think so. Yeah, pretty thankful that vaccines are, are starting to roll out fairly well in mass, um, depending on where you're at, get vaccinated. And uh yeah, bringing back live action role plays and and being able to go to ren fairs and cons and things like that is definitely yeah. something that I think that a lot of people in the community have been really itching for. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I've been going crazy with this cabin fever and the pile of board games I'm still having tried <laughs> piling up, and the pile of RPGs too. Because I got, I've recent, I've recently started uh, buying physical RPGs a lot more. Yeah. And I kind of it kind of feels like I got like hit by a gypsy curse or something. <laughs> it, it all started when I saw a uh, an ad on the Facebook Marketplace uh, selling a bunch of random RPGs, including like the first edition of Warhammer Fantasy, uh, Legends oh, of wow. Five, yeah, uh, Legends of the Five Rings, uh, the uh, Seven Seas, and this weird. RPG I've never heard of before or since called like uh I think it's called like Apocalypse 20 2022 or something like that like 2K2 okay it's, it's some kind of like basically like World of Darkness meets Shadowrun I want to okay. say it sounds cool it sounds cool yep. except it's absolutely cursed the thing the text is halfway unreadable. Some of the pages are you read it. Oh, is that just like ter- just all all printed, all weird? Like half, like there's a section where you just gotta read it sideways, like that. <laughs> like there's about like that much margin space that isn't used. So that's it, so that's where you know you've got like a a really solid uh, like it's either a treasure or like you said it's cursed it's either once you can decipher it you'll unlock the greatest rpg known to man or uh you you will collapse into a parallel dimension full of pain and torture (laughs) yeah and i I, i've read some of the mechanics and stuff it's i want to say it's mainly uh it's mainly a reason to make an activist book, I think, overall. It's <laughs> not amazing. So I think it's – I've never heard of it. I've never seen another copy of it. So I'm pretty sure it's like some kind of gypsy curse in a book. Because <laughs> since then, I have been like constantly buying physical books and adventure modules and all this kind of malarkey. No, I mean, I really like physical books. I, I really wish that more uh... – places and the same thing happened with like movies in in, when digital distribution started becoming bigger is like if i buy the physical one just put a code for one copy of the digital one in there too because i want the physical one for my personal reading when i'm hanging out in the living room and sometimes even while i'm playing but a lot of times when i'm playing or especially if i'm going somewhere else to play let me bring a tablet or a laptop and have all the same books without having to buy them twice because 
you know, there's there's different occasions for each of the resources and how I want to use them. And yeah, I don't think I should have to buy a book twice just to be able to read it in more than one place at a time. Yeah. And especially with uh, especially right now with COVID, with games that are online. Sure, it's Mm -hmm. nice to have the book that you can look through very easily. But how exactly do I give the book to my other players if you didn't give me a right. digital copy? Like It's harder to pass around the table and share and bring people in. I think that some services, it's it's interesting to see that a little bit of leeway has been given to at least some companies like D&D Beyond yeah. to kind of do a little bit of that. It's still rough when you've already got every single book in print copy and a pandemic hits and you've got to transition to digital. Oh yeah. That's the, somebody's got to buy them all over again. Yeah. That's the problem part. Like drive through RPG is generally pretty good with that. Obviously it depends on the, the prices the designer put, but I've seen some that like you can bundle in the PDF with the physical copy, mm-hmm. but I've seen some where you have to pay extra for that instead of just a book. And right. The PDF I, you, you sent to the printer. You're, you're already making your money off the print copy. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a bit egregious, personally. Like, mm-hmm. I think so, too. I think that if you're going to sell like PDF only, sure, make it a little cheaper because print does cost money. So I get spending more for a print version. But like, if you're getting a print version, just throw the PDF in there. Like, yeah. Let people what enjoy it? it. It doesn't cost you a thing. Like The guy already paid extra. Yeah. Even worse for... Idiots like me who never buy a book soft cover if he's got the chance. Oh yeah, same. I'm right there with you. I unless it's like a zine, like you said, where it's only available in soft cover. I've got to. I want it that spine to stand out on my shelf. Like, exactly. Just it just looks so freaking crisp. Mm-hmm. You know? And I can I can find. I need to be able to see it at a distance and know yeah. when I'm going to look for it that I can find what I want to get. Yeah, <laughs> and almost... those those paperback covers just don't have text on the spine. <laughs> Not amazingly. I'm also a big fan of just owning things that are going to outlive me. So I tend to go yes. with the hardiest stuff I can get. And I'm going to write my name in all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't believe terribly in the sanctity of books. I will, I will take notes in margins, um, not on glossy, not on glossy page stuff. Cause it's right, like, on like, on like research, like books that I use for research or, or nonfiction books, I will, I will write all sort my thoughts in the margins i'll highlight them because like i intend on being the only owner and if somebody else owns it after me i want that like my legacy left behind in it like i'm not going to be selling it at a garage sale or anything Uh, that's fair that's fair i I like to keep them as is for the most part especially rpg books if it's like rpg books i don't i don't mess with yeah if it's like a college textbook who gives a damn but right God, like you, you've paid like half a grand for this stuff. Come on. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It may, you you get to do whatever you want with it at that point. <laughs> yeah. So you've got a, a fairly long history in you know LARPing and tabletop games, but it wouldn't be Dungeons and Dinners if we didn't at least touch on food. And you made a great food reference earlier with demi glasses. So uh, tell us, uh, do you have a, a favorite style of food? Are you a cook yourself? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's actually outside of, you know, tabletop and design stuff. Cooking is one of my big hobbies, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So I love what do you focus on? Uh, I love cooking all types of things. I'm not a big fan of cooking desserts or just baking in general. I prefer uh, I prefer meals, generally uh, meaty stuff. Uh, Meat and vegetables with little carbs is generally what I try to uh, aim for when it comes to cooking and stuff that's pretty good. Do you have any uh, cultural influences that you tend to lean towards more than others? Uh, I do want to say uh, I've got a thing. I've, I've got a bit of a got a bit of a liking for Italian food. I do want to say, uh, you nice. know, tom- lots of tomatoes, lots of garlics, lots of you know, th- this kind of stuff is pretty good. I also for me, do- it's the noodles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pasta dishes also. But I, I do try and uh, keep some of my cooking kind of within the. Uh, cultural history of france and quebec because i'm a you know hardened fan of uh, my culture you know <laughs> if you ask me what country i'm from i'll say quebec not canada so it gives you a that's good fair. idea that's fair <laughs> so you know i try a whole bunch of stuff with that uh, especially because you know a lot of this historical food stuff is also pretty good for larps and rpg games too yeah so it really it really is 
you know, uh, meat pies is one of my big favorites mm -hmm. uh, over here in Quebec. Like the, uh, I want to say like the traditional one is called the tourtière. It's mm -hmm. basically a meat pie, but with potato chunks and other stuff in it. And generally wild, awesome. and generally wild game, which is I'm always happy to have some of my family hunt. So, oh nice, kind of that yeah. deer and moose meat, generally in good mm -hmm. amounts of plenty. Uh, I've also tried, you know, uh, confit food. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a uh, that's nice because it's you know it's a historical way of keeping food, uh, you know, edible for longer. Although. Right. Uh, I probably wouldn't advise it for a LARP, maybe keep it for RPG games, because while it does keep for a while, transporting meat in vats of oil might <laughs> yeah. not be the best thing to bring along with the other thousand pounds of stuff you can right. bring these things. If if one thing is going to break, it's going to be that, and the, the messiest thing will flood your car for sure. <laughs> yeah. No, no, that... Stews, have, also a mm -hmm. big fan. Have you done a like a pemmican at all? A pemmican, ah. It's like a, I believe it's like a somewhere between like a nut bread and a jerky. Oh, um, it's right. kind of a historical way to to also store food. No, no, I I have, however, played a lot with curing uh, curing foods and you know yeasty foods in general. You know, really? I've, uh, yeah, I've uh, cured my own. Uh, I've made my own. Uh, I almost wanted to call it beef strips, no beef jerky. Made my mm -hmm. own beef jerky. You know, the very traditional way: no baking, no smoking, just uh, right, dried and heavily salted. I've uh, made my own beer on multiple occasions. Uh, made nice. kefir. No, not kefir. You absolute dunce. Uh, Damn, what's the name? I forgot. Uh, it's a Russian light beer. Kvass. That's oh, it. Kvass. Oh, okay. Okay. I can't make it often because I don't find black bread often. Don't yeah. know why. Uh, so, you know, I've tried out that, made my own uh, sauerkraut and pickles and things like that. Okay. Now that's awesome. Pickling is a really, I think. It's one of those things that I might have to do an episode on that soon. Um, I don't have as much experience with it, though, so I may have to play around with a bit before I go try to talk about it on air. But yeah. it's something that I think a lot of people, at least I'm under the impression of, have really had like pickles, but not a lot of other pickled things. Right? No, I'm one of the like, few people here who actively buy sauerkraut. So, yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Or even just like, I mean, pickled peppers can go really well. Like, oh, yeah. It's a great way of preserving a lot of fruiting vegetables that I think is just underappreciated in culture. Yeah. As well as, you know, brined and pickled salads, like a nice cucumber salad. Yep. You fill that up with enough like vinegar, oil, and salt. You basically That's right. made like pickle salad basically and that stuff is absolutely delicious one of my new favorites honestly <laughs> i uh i also had uh so i'm kind of in the midwest and so there's a much more southern style to to barbecue oh, yeah. uh but i went up to the northeast to visit a friend and we went and had pulled pork and it was a very like brined almost pickled pulled pork oh yeah very heavy on the vinegar and i was like i i loved it uh, one of the people we went to was not as as big of a fan, but I I will get down on some vinegar for sure. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, some fancy vinegar. Then I'll go for some right, red wine, right. It doesn't have to just be yeah. Now the straight the straight white vinegar kind of just like tastes like acid reflux, honestly. Mm -hmm. But there's uh, a lot of ways to flavor it. And I mean, it, yeah. basically, if you can make wine, you can make vinegar. So anything you can make wine from, you can make vinegar from. And that opens yeah, the yeah. floodgates. I've uh, I've also tried making a few other things. Uh, summer sausage I've done once. Ooh. Yep. Uh, didn't have any pink curing salt. So I tried to go for the uh, quote unquote really traditional one where you basically fill it with as much cucumber as you can. Oh, because, really? Uh, yeah, because uh, fun fact, cucumber contains, it's like the food with the most naturally occurring amount of nitrates, and that's the stuff that cures meat. So, huh. like, so you grind a bunch of uh, cucumber into basically cucumber jelly. You put that with your ground beef. You add some uh, cu some. Uh, wait, I meant celery. I'm sorry, celery. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Still works. Yeah. It's still interesting. Yeah, I mean, celery, you put some celery seeds in there too, also because that tastes freaking great. Yeah, celery seeds are awesome. And uh, 
it should keep a lot longer than if you didn't put it in. Like, obviously, it's not going to do as much of a job as the pure concentrated, like, prog powder number nine, but right, it still manages to cure, and it tastes about the same stuff as the deli. Huh. That's really interesting. I may have to try to look into that some. That sounds like... I like experimenting with fun. Like, I may not make it all the time, but there's some things that I want to try to do at least once. Like, yeah. um, you know, we we did a, a couple of batches of soap from from bacon fat with, with lye, which was really fun to do. Like, and and there's a lot of those things where it's like, I, I there's a lot of foods that are so labor intensive to make that it's either like a once in a year thing, like any any time a bone broth. If you want to do a bone broth, oh right, god, yeah, I've you tried need it like so many times, like at least forty eight hours dedicated to just kind of tending that. At that point, but... I just want to see like land a pressure cooker from your like your aunt <laughs> or something. Just call it a day. That's true. That's true. I, the 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 batch size that I cook at though, I need like an industrial size one. Oh my god. Because <laughs> I because again, I only want to cook it once, and if I'm cooking it once, I'm making it enough to last. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. At that point. I'm not uh, personally. I I tend not to like shortcuts in the kitchen, but right. for things like that, like bone broth or demi glace, I think is where you can probably do a couple of shortcuts just to save yourself the insane headache. Yeah, I think if I'm making just like average night dinner ramen, I'm probably you know hitting up the the beef cube, bouillon cubes, and the Worcestershire sauce, and maybe you know liquid smoke or something, whatever else I I want to make a meat flavored broth with. A little bit but of tomato every now and again. also goes a long way. There you go. Yep, yep. But every now and again, I just get this urge like I could do it, and if I can do it, then I have to. I have to at least try. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then, I, and then I spend 48 hours in the kitchen complaining about how terrible it is. <laughs> yep, this is, uh, sounds about like, sounds about like uh, having kids, honestly. Yeah, right. It's like, just about... right, I can do this. It's going to be fine. And then later, oh my God, this is horrible. I never want to do it again. Next year, all right, this is going to be fine. It's not so bad. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, so... Uh, when did you first approach uh, like picking up cooking? Was it something that you were taught at a young age? Uh, did you develop out of kind of necessity or do you pick it up, like you said, more as a hobby later on? Uh, I want to say it started out mainly as a, as a necessity. I didn't really learn much cooking while I was uh, for a while because I didn't really care much for it, even though my mom is a pretty good cook herself. I mainly picked it up when I was in college because I was alone for the first time in my life. I was doing my groceries for the first time in my life. So I had a lot of freedom to do it. And then it kind of evolved into a hobby because unlike all of my other hobbies, you have to eat food each day, even when you're in like finals of college. Yep. So you always have an excuse to actually do something with your cooking and try stuff out. As much as a lot of us like to think that we'll die without RPGs every day, it's kind of not the truth. <laughs> it feels like it sometimes, but food much so is the, uh, you, you gotta have it. Yeah. So that's kind of why I started picking up and, you know, making good food. And, uh, you know, it's, it's also kind of a, it's, it's kind of a party trick. Cooking is kind of like magic, honestly. It is. If you have a bunch of friends that aren't really great cooks, and because, as I said, I'm from college, so nobody knows mm -hmm. how to cook. You <laughs> right. come over here with your fucking, what you know, your, uh, your big ass pot of stew that you like secretly put some MSG in there and like a whole bunch of other stuff. <laughs> the secret MSG is the best, yeah. and it, it tastes like it tastes like heaven. And they're like, "How the fuck did you do this?" Yep. You know, and then you do it for your family and they tell you you're good enough to marry and you feel absolutely great. It's the most rewarding <laughs> thing I've done so far because it's immediate it is one that of those, you just make something good. Right. It is one of those skills that can uh, can go out there and just it, it, it changes things because, you know, people are like, wait a minute, you're not using it. You're not using a microwave. And and this tastes especially if you're if you're hauling out a couple pinches of the old MSG in there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you're going to flavor bomb it and people are going to. They, they will fall in love. Yeah, especially uh, when it comes to my family, especially for mashed potatoes, where it's always just been, you know, salt, pepper, garlic, onion, mm -hmm. powder, and that's it. 
And, you know, I'm over here. Add some MSG. Add some paprika. Add some green mm-hmm. onions. Put some sour cream in there. Yep. Load it up like a mashed, like a loaded mashed potato. One of my secrets uh, to almost anything is ghee and duck fat. Oh yeah, I need to, I need to start buying some duck fat. I was actually surprised. It's I thought so it'd be good. more expensive. Yeah, it's not that bad at all, and it changes like popcorn. If you want to pop your own popcorn, like ghee, duck fat, pop the popcorn in that, and then right when it comes out, a little bit of salt and like some nutritional yeast. And holy cow, it is incredibly cheesy and yeah. flavorful and oh, so good. Yeah, and suddenly, just like that, your relatively healthy snack just became about as bad as potato chips. <laughs> hey, you know what? There's nothing There's nothing wrong with taking a healthy snack and making it not healthy. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I will turn around and eat a Beyond Burger or a veggie meal or something and balance it out on the other. Like, I'll have a healthy dinner so that I can have an unhealthy snack. I, I, I guess so. Personally, my healthy din- my go-to healthy dinner is just making a uh, making a salad and filling it with about as many unhealthy things as I can think of. You know? <laughs> right. Throw a yep. boneless chicken thigh in there. Uh, <laughs> nice, nice old vinaigrette. Uh, Bacon. Yeah. I gotta, really, gotta have bacon in the salad. Honestly, I'm not the biggest proponent of bacon and salad. Really? Yeah, because really? really, yeah, because there's two ways you can do bacon. One, you do it, uh, you know, not crispy. In which mm-hmm. case, uh, it's not hard enough that you can actually poke through it and not with a right. With a with your implement of choice. And the other option is to make it nice and crispy. In which case, it just breaks into more pieces when you try and pick it up. So no, just, okay, that's fair. That's it's, fair. It's basically like the same crouton paradigm. I just don't think it's really. Yeah, I've, worth it. I, I think it's one of those things that I don't do cream dressings at all. I do like oil and vinegar based stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that it works better with because you need something to stick it. I have the same problem, like you said, with croutons and with like chopped nuts. Like I love chopped pecans in a salad or chopped almonds, but there's no way to get them. You just end up with a pile of like dusted almond bits at the bottom of the bowl yeah. when you're done you basically get like one big almond bite at the end which i guess is <laughs> right. nice enough but it's not really hey. the purpose <laughs> right it could be it's an interesting treat it's like the milk at the bottom of a cereal bowl but that's not really the point yeah. <laughs> well um i uh i don't want to eat up all of your time today so is there <laughs> anything that uh any topics that we haven't covered that you would like to talk about while we're on the show um, well, I do want to, I've talked a little bit about it before, but I do want your opinion on it of, uh, what kind of foods you'd like to bring to an RPG game or maybe to a LARP? Like, what do you cook for your players and stuff? So I think those are two very different answers. Um, I haven't been to a lot of LARPs, but I've been to a few. And like you said, LARPing is all about packaging uh, sometimes it tends to be more bulk, uh, a tabletop game or a board game night is usually a little bit smaller crowd. Even, even if it's not a big LARP, you're usually dealing with at least kind of 10 plus, um, where a board game night, you know, four to six kind of most games don't support more than eight, which that's yeah. a lot to sit at a table anyway. But I think that for a, a tabletop games, especially, I mean, the, the whole concept of the show came from the point where we got to the point where we were making full-blown dinners for, yeah. for tabletop game nights. But I think that my go-to is any kind of snack-based or finger food type stuff that I can do th- with some kind of twist. Like if it's going to be like a, like a pinwheel roll of some kind, like a meat and cheese oh. pinwheel, then those can go really well. I think those could go well for both. Um, because you yeah, can make a yeah. lot of them and they store fairly well. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason um, that meat bread is a uh, classic from the old 4chan PG days. Right. <laughs> so I think, I think, and you can put a lot of spins on it too, right? You doesn't have to just be your, your basic level ham and turkey and Swiss or something. You could yeah. get some fancier cheeses or even make a spread or a schmear out of something and throw that in there. So you can, you can go as fancy as you want with a schmear. But I think a lot of times for like home games, I am a fan of dips. Like I love mm. anything from like a buffalo chicken dip to a veggie dip, any kind oh, yeah. of cheese dip. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. you really can't go wrong Spinach with a good cheese dip. And cheese, you know. Yep, 
Yep. Spin dip. Spinach and artichoke is great. Um, so I think, but again, it works for smaller groups where you have a place that you can microwave it and keep it hot. Yeah. I think LARPs, you need to have stuff generally that's good at room temperature. Like if you had to refrigerate it to keep it, that's fine. As long as it still tastes okay. Once it's like lukewarm, which can be kind of hard. Like there's, there's a fine, we're talking constraints again, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Honestly, like that's actually uh, interesting because when it comes to like tabletop games or, you know, especially RPGs, that's actually a pretty different answer than what I go for. Oh, really? Because personally, when I make food for an RPG game, I want it to be uh, immersive for the players. Mm -hmm. So I try to, Mm -hmm. so, you know, I make food that, uh, you know, immerse them into the world, like uh, stews without any potatoes, obviously, because, you know, right. that's in the whole other debate. <laughs> uh, so, you know, stews and uh, historical recipes, you know, stuff that you could find on the uh, Tasting History, which is a very good YouTube channel. No association. <laughs> this is not a plug, just a good recommendation. But, you know, historical dishes, you know, you can immerse yourself through different senses. Right. And as a big fan of food, I think that's something that can be really nice to uh, help immerse players. No, I think that is I think that is a really good way to do it. And I've not experimented quite as much with the, the closest I think we did was like themed food, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't necessarily something that maybe we could find it at a tavern, but it wasn't, you know, kind of exactly in game or anything. But we yeah. did a. Uh, a variation on scotched eggs oh, that we yeah. called uh dragon eggs. Oh yeah. So works, we did we did uh like the hard or the the boiled egg in the middle and the uh the sausage around that. But then instead of like a breadcrumb and fry, we cut bacon into like one inch squares and then layered them like diamond pattern around ah, the scotch egg. Now that and is then fancy we, as all hell. Yeah, we, it was, it took two people like an hour to make like eight of these things, no. <laughs> but we smoked them also. Oh. So we did, so we smoked them and then um, covered them in, cause the, the bacon fat's all on the outside. So they've got some moisture on them. We, uh, we covered them in colored uh, edible glitter. Now that's... So, so they were like, you know, there's red, red dragon eggs and green dragon eggs and stuff. So it was a fun little event. Damn, you guys go to some bougie taverns there. Right. <laughs> that's yeah. why I said most of them are dips. Yeah. I <laughs> Every mean, now and again, dragon eggs. Yeah. Although I do want to mention, right, like, it, it's nice to go for tavern food. I personally wouldn't wait until players are in a tavern to get because <laughs> right. if they're here because if they're like smelling the stew from the other side of the kitchen during like an hour before they reach the tavern i think they might like actually choke me out <laughs> so no that's something i want to just like pre- preface mm-hmm. but yeah i totally understand you know other stuff that could work well i think uh, uh cheese platters yeah i think could work uh, pretty nice uh i think there's a lot of good uh i think other types of nut butters outside of peanut butter are oh, kind of yeah. underutilized in snack foods. Like I think that like crackers and cashew butter or crackers and hazelnut butter. Um, I mean, Nutella is, is kind of hazelnut, but if you take yeah. it, if you disassemble it, you could do a hazelnut butter on a cracker with a small piece of dark chocolate on top. Oh yeah. And I think that a... you could be really fancy, but also filling like a high level of protein, especially for like a LARP where you're going to be yeah. running around all day. You want to make sure to get your energy back. There's also uh, there's also halva, which is a uh, sun basically like sunflower turned into sunflower butter and then sort of okay. hardened into a brick of uh, sunflower and sugar. Basically, that sounds tasty. I'd I'd take it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it sounds pretty good. You gotta, you, as with any other butters, you gotta have a good industrial strength mixer. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> right. But. Uh, that's an option. Also, you could also tie it up with some fun stuff. Like, uh, let's say you want to do a session where players visit like a halfling or a hobbit village. <laughs> and you could do like uh, meat pies. And you could yeah. say that they are during like a, uh, you know, like uh, I know in uh, Warhammer Fantasy, there's like a, uh, one of the only uh, holidays that halflings have is uh, basically a meat pie competition. Yep. 
You could do it. Although I would probably stay away from the the goblin madcap mushrooms. Probably not mm. something that we want to be. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, as it does mention in the book in Warhammer Fantasy, like if it's not a halfling's meat pie, you probably don't want to eat it because right. <laughs> it's probably just a bunch of old ass meat and other such items of things that look repute. like meat or. Just are filling a little bit of sawdust, some straw, whatever yeah. stuff in there. <laughs> you can you can mix like enough cinnamon and stuff to make anything look like minced meat too. So. Oh, right. <laughs> you gotta watch All right. those. <laughs> Anything else you wanna you wanna cover? So we uh I don't think so, no. Yeah, all right. Well, uh, I'll uh, include links to uh, your game on Steam as well as Machiavelli on Game Crafter. And uh, are there any other specific shout outs you want to get uh, before we hop off of here? Uh, yeah. I don't uh, I don't think so. All right. Well, uh, Mikio, I super appreciate your time at Mikio one on Twitter, guys. Go check him out. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us at the D and Dinner's table. Yep. Uh, thank you for listening, everyone. Have a nice day. So that's all for the episode today. Please let me know your thoughts, comments, or episode ideas. I am most active on Twitter, but you can find all of my links and contact information on the card website that's down in the show notes. If you're interested in supporting the show and getting additional bonus content, consider tossing a few coins over to patreon.com slash dungeonsanddinners. If you're looking for other great podcasts to listen to, you could check out my other podcast, Pick Up Your Sticks, which is a long-form show about why gaming matters, co-hosted by myself and my dear friend, Walker Near. I'm really excited to be sharing this journey with you, and remember that love is the secret ingredient. Have a good day, friend. Thanks for stopping by. 